God will come and he will crush. There will be authority like you would not believe. Satan, you are going down. This will be restored. Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you, man. Excited to be here worshiping with you, whether you're here in person or joining online. We are launching into a new sermon series today. We're in the second series uh, here in the whole process of the year going through the book of Revelation. And so overall, this is called the Revelation of Jesus. This series is called The Thunderous Sevens and the Copycat. We're going to be walking through Revelation chapters 4 through 19. You're going to see God's fingerprint all over the place. His glory, his greatness, his perfection in the number seven. The thunderous sevens is the statement of God everywhere throughout all that is to come. So we're going to be looking at Revelation 4 through 19, but there's a lot that's going to go into it. So in fact, if you notice, the booklet that you should have gotten there starts out with Genesis, and then next week we're going to be in Daniel. We're setting the stage so we understand. Let's get the beginning first grasped so that as we run into this, we know what we're headed into. We know what to be looking for, all right? So first of all, everybody should have gotten a book on your way in. Hopefully you did. If you did not, just go ahead and raise your hand. We want to get a book to you. This is for every single person, all right? So if you need a book, just raise your hand. They'll get one to you, all right? Ushers have them there. That said, for the rest of us, let's go ahead and turn to uh, really that first page. It's the letter. And we're just going to walk through the letter there. It says, Dear Summit Attenders, all right? So I'm just going to walk through this and read this just to set the stage for what we're going after. Here we go. We are continuing our, drive into, our dive into the book of Revelation. The first three chapters were a great start in looking back at the seven churches and their wake-up call. That's where we were last fall, right? It was called the wake-up call. We walked through the seven churches and the challenges to them. It was back at the time of John. Real churches, everybody say real. Real churches with real problems, and we were able to learn along the way as we walked through that. That was the wake-up call, so it was a great start. Now we turn to chapters 4 through 19, God's prophetic reveal and his hand at work in the final seven years before Jesus returns. Chapters 4 through 19 is looking forward to Christ's second coming and all that's going to take place coming into that, those final seven years and the setup there. So we are beyond excited to be moving into part two of our journey of digging deep, learning, and fanning the flame of our worship. Let's remind ourselves of a few thoughts before we continue on. First, ready? Let's worship. Everybody say worship. Man, the battle cry is for us to make much of Jesus Christ. We are not walking through this for information's sake alone. This is to make much of Christ and to worship him with all we've got. God has covered the pages of Revelation with his glory. The purpose of this book is for worship, not for worry. That's going to be our battle cry through the whole thing. For worship, everybody say for worship, worship. not for worry. Everybody say that with me not for worry. Let's put it all together. For worship, not for worry. We're not walking through this so we can learn all the bad things and get really freaked out. Everybody say, not that. We're going through this that we might be stunned with the greatness of God and his glory and worship him along the way. God has a plan. Second, let's have fun. God has revealed some of the roadmap for what is to come. So what did he share? 
What was it that God revealed and why did he reveal it? Let's have a good time as we dig into those details and see what God is revealing about what's to come. And then third, let's rally together as a church. This world is pulling for more and more dissatisfaction. But the hope and promise of this book is found in knowing the King of Kings. And if you are saved, you are his children and you are headed to an amazing home with him. May we believe in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. May we confess him as Lord. May we declare him as our king. And all of God's people said, and that's the battle cry. May we know Jesus Christ as our Lord. So this is a three-part series that we're going to be walking through on Sundays. Part one was back in the fall. Part two right now. Part three coming after the Easter series. All right, we'll take a quick break there for Easter, and then we'll jump into part three to close out the rest of the book. And um, so that said, just want to remind you that uh, we talked about this one other time, but we are also going to have a study that we start up called The Revelation of Jesus, A Deeper Dive. And so that's going to be going on on Wednesday night, starting February 22nd. So it's a ways out, but uh, February 22nd, Wednesday nights, love to have you join us. Small group leaders plan on trying to get your groups to that. But uh, Wednesday night, February 22nd, it'll be six weeks. And we're just kind of taking all that we're learning on Sundays and then going even deeper, looking at some Old Testament passages that line up, connecting it all together and kind of getting the whole picture, if you will, taking that deeper dive. So we'd love to have you join us for that. You'll be signing up online. We'll get more out there on that coming up, but that's just to let you know it's coming, all right? February 22nd, all right? That said, turn with me to page eight in the book, and we'll get going here as we get ready to take off, all right? So we're excited to be going into this, and uh, this is a huge deal. I'm just saying I cannot say this enough for worship, not for worry. So as we launch in, I'm just telling you, January is meant to be a massive worship month. We are going to go after it in a big way. We're starting today with just recognizing the greatness and the grandeur of all that Jesus is providing for us, but huge worship. And it's going to just keep crescendoing up as we get into Revelation 4 and you see the throne room of God the Father, and then Revelation 5 with Jesus alone who is worthy. And just the worship is going to go unhooked here. That's our goal, all right? So in that thread, uh, between Revelation 4 and 5, between those two Sundays, we're actually going to have a Thursday night worship here. So we're going to pull together an adult worship on Thursday night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock, just going after a big time of praising, worshiping, some time in prayer, some verses being read out, just a huge worship night, January 26th, Thursday night. All right, so again, you'll be hearing more about that in announcements, but just think worship. We're going after it big. Everybody just say worship, and that's January, all right? That's where we're headed. So as we dive in today, we're going after the, Lord, give me an understanding of what I need to know. Like if we're going to grasp the end, you have to know the beginning first. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we'll get a start there in understanding what God is even doing in the book of Revelation and what he's accomplishing, all right? That said, point number one, see the source. Sin starts with a desire to elevate self above God. See the source, the source of the problem. Sin starts with a desire to elevate self above God. 
All right, it's a huge deal that we grasp. It's a self problem. All too often when we get into a sin issue, we start trying to look around for somebody else. But sin is a problem within me. That's where it starts. So here we go. Let's start in Genesis chapter 3. Now you've got to remember, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, has spoken the world into existence. From nothing, everything exists. The Adam and Eve are living in an innocence, a style of perfection where they have yet to have tasted of any fallenness. There is this stunning, great perfection, this interaction together, God with creation. There's this sweet time together, all of that going on. And then we pick it up in Genesis 3, where it's about to collapse. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Let's just hold right there. Okay. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And we see the serpent here, and we see Satan interacting in and with the serpent. We see that talked about again in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 and 21. He's called the serpent. G or, uh, Satan is called the serpent, and Jesus is standing against him. And so you have the, the satanic interaction with the serpent, and the serpent now coming in to this world, interacting with his sinfulness. Remember Satan's battle cry, I will be like the Most High. And as Satan fell, it was, I want to be like God. I'm going to take the power away. And now he's stepping into the garden to try to tear down Christ's creation in his craftiness, in his twistedness. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And uh, the answer to that is uh, no. Everybody say no. Did God actually say this? Uh, no, he didn't say that. Made up twisted it, seeing if he can get them to move. God actually said you can't eat of any of this? Well, that's not what God said at all. In fact, in Genesis 2, God was like, hey, you can eat of any of the trees of the garden, just not this one. Any of the trees you can enjoy, all of this is for you, just not this one. So he twists it and he says, he said you can't eat of any of it? By the way, right off the bat, He's immediately attacking the goodness and the character and the fairness of God. And he's like, seriously? He's ripping you off? And Eve says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. I'm just telling you the appropriate answer would have been, talk to the hand. Shut up, man. You just attacked God. What is wrong with you? That would have been a better answer, right? This answer, she begins to be dragged down into it. She starts to get into the twist, and she starts trying to unwind the misunderstanding and try to help him along. He doesn't want to learn. He's trying to tear her down, and she begins to try to answer. I'm just going to say it this way. Uh, temptation is often clothed in partial truth. Temptation is often clothed in partial truth. Did God actually say you can't eat of any? No, he just said you can't eat of one, but all the rest is yours. Temptation is often clothed in partial truth. We start to see a twist on what really is, and it gets in our heads. 
and uh, Satan twisting this up. And really, shouldn't it have been deeply concerning to Eve that she began to hear a lie right in front of her? And she kind of missed that. And in the midst of it, she begins to move forward trying to answer it. She says, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She goes, oh, no, no, let me correct. It's not you can't eat of all. It's just you can only eat of the one, right? And she's giving him information. Quite frankly, the better answer would be to not talk to him at all. But instead, she begins to process through and help him out. And Satan is trying to drag her down. She's like, let me tell you what God actually said. It's just the tree of good and evil. That's the one I can't eat from. Everything else, though, I can. And then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And everybody say, well, that's not true. Dude, there's nothing recorded where God says to her, don't even touch it. That's not what happened. In fact, I'll say it this way. Probably what happened here is we have God saying, don't eat of it. And they're like, yeah, I can't eat of it because otherwise you'll die. And so then she says, you know what? Maybe the better move between Adam and Eve, they agree, we'll just put an extra rule around it. So in the middle, just obey God. Don't eat it. Rule around it. Don't even touch it. Just stay away. Don't even look at it. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. That's like the rule wrapped around the outside. I call this making a donut. Because you take the truth and you wrap around it your own rule of legalism, whatever it might be. Let's do this as well. This will make it even safer. And over time, you lose the absolute center of the truth. And all you have is your rule left. And that's it. And she's sitting there with the rule of, I'm not even supposed to touch it. But what should have become is, my God is so giving and so gracious and so thoughtful, and he's given us everything in, and this is the one, and he loves me enough to keep me away from it. Just stay on the center truth. Instead, she just made it a bunch of rules and wrapped her own around. Don't even touch it. Otherwise, you'll die. By the way, be careful about in your own life making donuts where you just add your rules around the outside of what God is saying, and over time you actually lose the center and your whole world becomes legalism as you live out the new rules of life you've made up to try to be extra safe. Be careful with that. Eve falls into that here as she's ending up saying, we're not even supposed to touch it. Then she says, lest you die. Well, that part is true. God did say, be careful if you eat of this, you will die. So Satan responds, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And, uh, and this is a huge throwdown moment. He just said, God lied to you. You will not surely die. Now the reality is he's sharing a partial truth here. Everybody say partially true. What he's catching on to is, look, this isn't going to be an immediate physical death. It's not that. You're not going to immediate. There is going to be physical death, but it's not immediate. So he's like, you're not going to die. You're going to taste of it, and then something is going to happen, and that's it. And you're not going to physically die, but here's what will happen. You will spiritually die immediately. There will be an immediate separation from God. There will be an immediate implosion of your soul into selfishness like you have never seen before. I'm not going to tell you about that. I'm just going to tell you, you're not going to physically die right away. That won't happen. Partially true. Twist it up and causing you 
to begin to accuse God and his goodness. This is the twist of temptation, is to cause you to begin to think, maybe I know how to care for me a little better. Maybe God's missing something here. Maybe something he shared isn't quite true. But the spiritual death is immediate. The physical death would be coming. Satan is lying outright. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. Yikes. Do you remember Satan's battle cry? I will be like the Most High. That was his battle cry. Now he's like, you will be like the Most High. He is sharing his disease across. And he's inviting Eve to begin to seek to be equal to God, like the Most High. You will be like the Most High. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. I'm going to be a little blunt here. Everybody say partially true. You will know good and evil. Like when you taste of this, when you go into disobedience, when sin occurs in your life, when your soul begins to collapse and your rising up of flesh becomes so self-absorbed, oh, you'll know evil. The catch, though, is God knows evil from a distance. God isn't evil at all. God knows evil because it's just the opposite of him. God is aware of it from the outside, but when we sin, we know of evil from the inside. It tears us up. It wrecks our soul. It causes us to rise up in selfishness like we could not believe. We taste of it in a horrifying way. He's like, you'll know of good and evil. Well, actually, that's true. But it will horrifyingly destroy you, and there will be spiritual death immediately and physical death coming. It's only a partial truth, and it's a twist at that, and it is pulling her in. In the midst of this sharing of the untrue and causing her to begin to look at it, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, everybody say, uh-oh, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She literally thought, well, it could be good to know about good and evil. I mean, I'm not even sure I really comprehend evil. That's the world that Adam and Eve were living in, by the way. Can you imagine living in that world? What's evil? I'm not even sure I know. Man, would that be nice, huh? Like, we get asked, what's evil? And you're like, how long do you have? Right? What's evil? Are you kidding? We know exactly. And she's like, I don't even know. This would be amazing to gain that wisdom. How disgusting. The twist that became God isn't there to make you happy. God isn't giving you what you need. This will be so much better for you. You need to go after it. It's a lie that this is going to hurt you. Just take it for yourself. Isn't that what every temptation is? Just go after it. This is best for you. Don't worry about it. Ah, you deserve it. They're lying. You know you better. Just temptation, man. It can tear us down. And uh, it says, when she saw it and that it could make her wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
Everybody say, that's a bad plan. Dude, she fell in. Isn't it weird how we can so easily see when somebody else falling into temptation is a terrible plan? When they start to fall and we're like, what are you doing? And then we have our own struggle and we don't see it at all. We get this distracted, confused, seeing the partial truths and believing some of it. And it tears us down. Eve ate of it and went after it. She effectively was saying, I think I know better than God. I would love to have wisdom. This seems like a really good add to my life. I just wrote this down this week. When it appears that you are right and God is wrong, you are wrong. (laughs) Clear enough? When it appears that you are right and God is wrong, you missed it. You are wrong. The end. And it would have been a nice end to the whole story for her to go, what am I thinking about? And just stopped. But instead she ate. It says, and she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh. Dude, I don't know what Adam is doing while she's communicating with Serpent here and they're having a little talk, but he's with her. He's somewhere right nearby. He's hearing it. And instead of going, stop, 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 stop. No more talking to that. That's a lie. Knock it off. We're over here. Let's go. Like there was no team. There was no, he just let it all start to slide. His headship was not bringing protection. And in fact, she fell right in front of him in the midst of it. It says that in the midst of him being with her, he ate. Everybody say, that's a bad plan. And the first sin in the world came into being. Partial truths, temptation, donut made, believe that I know better than God, and fell trying to lift me up. The source of our sin is us not trusting God and just handing it over. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Man, we read that and you just keep reading too fast. You've got to imagine it. They never knew evil. I don't even know what it looks like. It could be enticing to take this bite just so I know what evil is. I don't even know how to explain what that is. Every thought they had was pure, happy, worshipful, celebratory, encouraging of the other person. Best marriage that ever existed, right? As these two are talking to each other, and it's always lifting up and encouraging, always seeing the best of, never attacking, never tearing down, never doubting God, all of it just stupendously, elatedly joyful in it. And all of a sudden, as they think maybe this is better, and they take the bite, imagine the rush of sin into their soul. As the the flesh collapses, as the lusts rise up, all of a sudden Adam looks over at Eve and she's not wearing any clothes. And the first time he's ever looked at her like that, with this horrible, lustful, her body is something else to him now. And all of a sudden, all of their drives become self-driven. Every piece of them, what you and I live with every day, where we wrestle things back into place and we try to keep it in order and we worship our God in the midst of it, they never knew that. And all of a sudden, they knew it horrifyingly. And as it thrust, just rushed into their soul, the first thing they did is they're like, you better put something on you. 
and I'm going to put something on me. Let's get this covered up. This is dangerous, man. Can you imagine the rush of sin and how horrible it felt in the midst? As I was looking up the definition of temptation this week and of sin this week, I ran into this definition. Piper says, John Piper, the power of temptation is in the promise that it will make me happier. The power of temptation is the promise that it will make me happier. I think I know better than God. I think God missed it. It's going to make me happier. Don't believe it. The power of the temptation is that it will make me happier. See the lie. Be able to identify the partial truth. Let's say it this way. In James, it says that God does not tempt. He isn't trying to pull you down. He isn't trying to set you up. We are tempted when we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. And that, by the way, is why they made the loincloths and why they began to hide. They were putting their lust in check and trying to figure out how to manage all that they were going through. Simple question. So what temptation is washing on your shore this week or today? What temptation are you wrestling with where you're buying into some of the partial truths? Man, are you ready to say, Lord God, I want to see the lie. I want to set this down. I'm ready to come to you. May you get all the glory. Down with hiding from our God up with coming to him in repentance. What is it that you need to hand to him? May we give it to him with all we've got. And all of God's people said, amen, amen man. That's the first point. See the source. Second, see the symptom. Sin brings immediate fear, shame, and blame. See the symptom. Sin brings immediate fear, shame, and blame. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord walking. In other words, they knew what it sounded like for God to come and visit. I, uh, we don't know what this means exactly, but somehow God in his presence was a, a noticed and a recognizable sound. They were recognizing the presence of God right there with them. But this time it meant something so different. They were able to celebrate in the past with no knowledge of evil and only of good. They could celebrate this God. And every time they heard his presence, they were like, God is here, man. Let's go over and spend some time. And there was deep worship, and there was passionate celebration, and there was time together relating. This time, they heard it, and they're like, uh-oh. He's here. We need to be careful. We need to go hide. It says, and so they hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees. The very gifts that God gave is where they went and hid. By the way, note that. Oftentimes, we will try to hide from God in our sin by going to other things that God gave. And be super careful in it. Watch out that God gets all the glory and that we worship him, that we humbly come before him. It says, but the Lord God called to the man. 
Why the man? Headship. Responsibility. He had assigned responsibility, and so he calls out to Adam, and he's like, hey, let's talk it through. And he said, where are you? As he calls him out, Adam, where are you? What's going on? In the past, whenever God had walked in, they would hear him and come to him. Not this time. Now, just so you know, this isn't God asking the question because God doesn't know the answer. He could have said, I know your four trees over and behind that one over there, just come out. But he knew exactly what was going on. But instead, he's asking them to begin to participate with him. Where are you? What's going on? Why are you hiding? He's gently helping them to see the destruction that's occurred in their soul. And then he said, I heard, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I, I heard you and I... I got afraid for how I looked. I had to get some clothes on real quick, right? That moment where somebody rings the doorbell at your house and you need to put a little bit more clothes on, right? He's like, I'm in that moment. So I was just putting some clothes on. In his mind as he's explaining it, he's like, it was very appropriate. I really, I wasn't dressed. I needed to get dressed. I needed to get some things covered. And he's like, I went after it. And I just wrote this down as I was thinking about it this week. In the face of sin, the flesh hides while the spirit reveals. In the face of sin, the flesh hides, but the spirit reveals. And this is a huge deal. Our God calls us to come to him gently, to set our sin down and to see the cost of it along the way. And our flesh longs to just hide it all. And be careful of the symptom. If you're in a hide mode, Sin is ravaging somewhere in your life. Be cautious with that. God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you to eat? Like, who told you you were naked is a very direct question. How did you know that? You know you knew that yesterday, and it didn't mean much to you. Why does it mean so much today? Who told you this? That's a very direct question. Then God goes one step further. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The one sin that could have gone on, have you stepped into disobedience? Again, God knew the answer. God's not like, what happened here? I'm kind of clueless. Like that, everybody say, not that. God's like, I'm trying to help you understand that I know and that you need to come to me and this needs to be resolved and this is devastating and God's calling him out. The man said, well, the woman. Beautiful, right? <laughs> the, the woman whom you gave me. Right? He's like, I, 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 her. And, and you put her here, man. Like, I, that's what happened. Like, I mean, you gave me to her, and she then did this, and then the... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and, and, and then, I, well, then I ate. I ate, but you gave her to me. What do you want? Blame. In the midst of our sin, first we hide, then we blame. The symptoms are ravaging. In the midst of our sin, first we hide, then we blame. Adam blames God. Isn't that a beautiful blame out? 
when we fall down in our own choices and we're like, God, why did you allow that to even be the setup? You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have even put it that way. Like, you're kind of at fault for me failing, right? And he, he blames God, and then he blames Eve for even handing it across to her. Uh, mind you, the whole time he heard the conversation going on, and he never once stopped it or did what he was supposed to do. He just shifted the blame to God and Eve. First we hide, then we blame. Everybody say hide, then blame. Get used to seeing it in your life. Notice when it's going on and recognize that sin is getting the better of you. Time to repent. When hiding and blaming is taking place, it's time to be done with some sin somewhere. What is it, right? Says the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, then I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent. Again, first the hide, then the blame. She's like, I can't really blame him, so I'll, the serpent. I mean, the serpent deceived me. He told me a partial truth, and, 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 and then, I, then I ate. But he, he lied, and, and you let him be here, and the serpent. Hiding and blaming. I just wrote this down. The language of shame is blame, not confession. The language of shame is blame. Man, when you start to take on sin and it starts to ravage into shame, you know you got there because the first thing you do is look for somebody that you can point a finger at, not self. Blame out. The language of shame is blame, not confession. And in the midst of coming to confession, we have come through the shame and we have seen God for who he is and we repent of what is going on and we confess it is done and that's when real healing takes place. Blame never fixed anything. And all of God's people said, may we grasp that, man. Blame never fixed a thing. We had a dog. This dog is not the one I'm talking about, the dog that we have now, but the dog that we had before was named Teddy. And uh, we had a dog that, uh, like every other dog, loves to come and greet you at the door, right? And we could leave him out. We didn't have to keep him in a crate or anything. And so we would keep him out. And when we'd come back from being gone on a dinner or whatever, he would come running to the door and he'd run in circles and we'd be able to pet him and he'd kind of lean up against you. And he was just a super happy, welcoming dog, right? Except there were moments where you'd come home and he's not around because Teddy had a habit. I still don't know why. We never, we don't have dog psychology that we chose to go to, but he, cho he chose to go into the bathroom to go up to the toilet paper roll, grab the toilet paper and walk backwards <laughs> out of the bathroom, down the hallway, I mean long, and then go back and be like, I'll eat this part of it and then like chew up the toilet paper and spit it out. And so there's toilet paper run off the roll and there's stuff all chewed up and left out. So when we would show up and Teddy doesn't run to the door and circle us, we're like, where's the toilet paper? <laughs> so we go up and look around and you find it. It got to the point where we knew exactly what it was. It was always the same thing. Whatever it was in his little body, he was like, gotta have some toilet paper now, man, you know? <laughs> 
when we found him, we would go in and he'd usually be in the back room in the corner. And as we stepped in, he would kind of turn away a little bit and he put his head down. I don't know what's going on in a dog's head, but shame was being felt. He's like, I am so wrong. I know I'm wrong, I'm high, don't worry, I won't come to you. And as he's kind of leaning away and kind of almost quartering away, looking down, then Jonna would always say, Teddy, <laughs> what have you done? And that was it. Like he would start shaking, he's like, I know it was wrong. And the only thing that didn't happen in the whole story that's exactly like this is he should have said, you bought the toilet paper. <laughs> then, right then. <laughs> and it would have been perfect. <laughs> I'm telling you, we live out in our sin. We hide from, and then we blame out. The symptoms are ravaging. Is sin ravaging your soul? Are you in a hide and a blame? Man, it's time to just lay it down before God and confess to him, may he get all the glory. And all of God's people said, amen. amen, man. Point number three, see the hope. See the hope. While there is eternal penalty for sin, there is hope in a future seed of Eve. See the hope. This is why we're looking at the passage today, to grasp these two verses right here. See this hope. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Consequence for, everybody say there's consequence. And there is consequence for sin, both right in the here and now and eternal, as it separates us from God forever. And it says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all of the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your lives. He's like, there's a representation of this just in what's happening to the physical serpent. You're going to eat the dust of this earth in all of its sin and brokenness. As this earth is broken down and you're now taking in the dust of what is kind of fading away. That's what's happening to the physical serpent. And Satan, he then has this to say too. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. There is going to be an enmity between the offspring of Eve and Satan and all that he is bringing. And in the midst of it, you see this representation of Satan as the serpent. You see him talked about in multiple passages throughout the New Testament as the serpent. Man, this is God dealing with Satan. And in the midst, he's saying this, I want you to hear me. There is going to be an offspring of Eve that is going to bring it on you. Now, here's the problem. But the offspring of humanity always falls into sin. And we have no authority and we have no righteousness and we have no holiness. Who could this be? And as you move to the next piece, it says, he, the offspring, there is one, everybody say one. The offspring of Eve shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the ESV. Just so you know, the original language there, that word bruise means to strike, to crush, to blow. And as you take a crushing blow to the head, it is massively impactful to him. And then all he can do is hit your heel. He's striking the heel, but the offspring is striking the head. This is going to be a devastating blow. 
and it's going to come through the offspring of Eve. How does this work? If every human being born has sin, then who has that right and authority? Who is worthy? And the answer is that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, steps down into this world that the Holy Spirit becomes father with a female, and there is now for the first time perfect humanity, fully God, fully man. In Genesis 3.15, the hope is given. God will come, and he will crush. There will be authority like you would not believe. Satan, you are going down. This will be restored. And the offspring is going to bring it like you would not believe. Satan absolutely hearing his death threat from God the Father. I'll just say this. His head crushed at the cross as Jesus Christ died and rose again. Him for me. As he died to carry the cost of our sin, he has crushed the head of Satan. Everybody say spiritually. And more than that, at the second coming that is coming, Jesus Christ will come again as Lion of Judah, and he will crush physically, forever putting him into the lake of fire hell. Satan will lose. And all of God's people said, we have hope. His name is Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, it got set up. Hang on. There's going to be one coming in humanity that is going to fix the problem. And his name is Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus. And that's our hope. So as we dive into Revelation and you start to look at those last seven years, know this. We have already had the spiritual victory at the cross. He has died and is risen. Praise be to God. And we have the physical victory still to come. And this is what is being borne out. God has a plan. Everybody say God has a plan. Jesus Christ, he is my hope. Everybody just say, my hope. That is the promise of Genesis 3.15 and how we see it meted out. Man, you look back to Christmas that just came. We just celebrated the moment that he entered into this physical world and became the offspring that would go to the cross for you and for me. He died and he rose that I might have spiritual forever life. And he still has the physical dominance to come. May God get all the glory. And all of God's people said, let's pray. 